Let's give him a very extra big warm welcome this morning. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Has everybody been uh, doing their homework? Reading up on the book of Revelation? Uh, anybody willing to admit they've never read the book of Revelation? I, I thought I saw a few hands quickly go up there. <laughs> but before we, go, before, we, before we plunge into the next section of Revelation here, let's just remind ourselves of what we're reading. Revelation is a pastoral letter. It's early Christian prophecy and it's apocalypse, which is, as I said last week, the Greek word for revelation or unveiling. And if we read it as such, rather than a roadmap for our future or a countdown to the end of time, it orients us to a way of reading that is more coherent with how we read the rest of Scripture. Uh, it helps us hear more of Revelation's challenge to our situation, set, us, set apart from the distracting conversation about determining if or when some countdown has begun. This helps us move closer to seeing our word, world from God's point of view, and therefore to know how to respond to its challenges and its temptations in a way that reflects more closely what our primary allegiance is, and that is to the kingdom of God and to Jesus Christ himself. Now, I, I don't know, is, have I, we're all good. I just want to show you a word. Um, anybody ever seen this word before? Does anybody know how to pronounce this word? Let me tell you, it's pronounced fish. And the way you can get that is because the GH um, is from the word rough. And GH in rough is pronounced F. The O is from women and the TI is from station. And so if you combine those together, that is how you spell fish. <laughs> A perfectly reasonable thing to do in the English language. Now, I, I put that up there because... It's one of those ridiculous things that often what happens is when we go to study things, we like to pull things out of our proverbial boot or some, anywhere else we might find things to try and explain <laughs> things in a way that, that explain them in the way we want them to come out. Uh, in in um, Bible study, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a word for that. It's called eisegesis. It's bending scripture to fit what you think it should say. Um, but the way that to, to look at scripture properly is something called exegesis, which is when you look at the text and try and work out what the text is telling you without a, a preconceived idea of it. And so I, I, I just want to say that as you, as you read the, the book of Revelation, as I know you all are, um, we actually have to be careful that we don't put things in there that aren't actually in the text. And so to help us do that, to give us a, a bit of an insight into the next part of Revelation, who, who enjoyed last week's uh, animation? Uh, so we're going to uh, follow on from where we left off on that one and find out what goes on in the next part of the book of Revelation. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for We've them. We've just backed up a little Passover here to give you a refresher. So that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. 
And so this vision concludes with the Lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain Lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals. And John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1. And they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel. And the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the inside incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. 
The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. Right. Now we're going to unpack that. Sentence by sentence, not. Who thinks it's sort of starting to get a bit exciting? Is that clear to people? I think that's a great overview of, of uh, what John is trying to tell us in that. And you, you notice that we see a lot of the stuff I talked about last week. There's a lot of symbolism. There's that dualism thing. Um, and uh, the, all the other attributes of apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature uh, are, are showing in this section of Revelation. And so, I, I don't know, I hope you, you actually got a, a picture of, of actually what some of the themes are up here. And we, we're going to pick on one uh, for today because uh, the title of my message is Your Mission Should You Decide to Accept It is clearly outlined here in Revelation. And... There's a lot of symbolism that involves the church, and there's a lot of contrast. This dualism thing. Have you noticed that what John hears is always Old Testament language, but what he sees is New Testament reality? That there's the lion and the lamb. Have you noticed there's 
there's the Old Testament lion turns into a New Testament slain lamb. So there's, there's, a, there's a sameness about them. They represent the same person, but they represent different sides of the same person, which is, of course, Jesus. There's those who can't, can stand against the divine judgments, who are God's people, and those who can't, which is the rest of the world. Notice there's, a, there's an Old Testament army of 144,000 versus the New Testament church, which, by the way, isn't limited to 144,000, if you were ever worried about that particular scripture. Um, there's one thing we haven't actually got to yet, but there's the mark of God, which was shown there, that was put on his people, and there's also the mark of the beast, which I'm sure none of you have ever heard of. Um, but that actually comes next week, and I'll, I'll be talking uh, uh, a bit more about that. Uh, and then, of course, there's the whole idea of the actions and, that play out throughout Revelation either lead to repentance, or even though they're from God, they actually lead to a hardness of heart and non-repentance. And so we've got all, all these contrasts and, and dichotomies happening. And there's all this symbolism. There's the slim, symbolism of the, the slain lamb representing Jesus. There's the, the symbolism of the new temple, uh, the lamb's army of nation, and the lampstands, which all go to represent the church. Now... It's funny, what does it mean when it represents the church? Who's the church? You lot. Me. We're all the church. So th this is actually a call to action. This is, this is a, a, a scripture that we can read and see that we have a, a job to do. We, there is a mission in here that John is calling his people to. He actually doesn't, I don't know whether you know about this, but John didn't know we were going to exist. He doesn't know any of you. And he didn't have a vision that said, uh, Justine is going to be around in 2018. She's going to do amazing things as part of the church. And he didn't actually know that. He wasn't even interested. Sorry, Justine. Um, but uh, he was a bit selfish. And, 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 and it was quite a, you know, a couple of millennium ago. Um, so, but he, his focus was on the people that he knew, the churches that he was writing to. And he was telling them, no matter what is coming up, you have a mission. Should you choose to accept it? And so we've got this picture of a present for John. And although he's talking the present, of course, it doesn't exclude th things that happen in the future. So as a future church, it applies to us, but he's saying the church is going to undergo persecution. Duh. I mean, even today, the Christian faith is the most persecuted faith in the world. There are people dying all over the world today for their faith. And so what it's telling us is that even though the church is under persecution, it is still God's primary weapon to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus. So, but before we go on, can I just reiterate one thing? Revelation is not about you. This is, this is I mean, people read the book of Revelation and they try to get answers from it for them. Let me tell you, the book of Revelation is actually about Jesus Christ. He is the main key character. It's the, it's the character and the actions of Jesus Christ that are highlighted all of this. John devotes 90% of the book to actually informing us about the importance of Jesus. And, and next week, I'm actually, my, my, the title of next week's talk, Ben, if you're listening, uh, is going to be The Lion and the Lamb. Because it's actually a a description of how John, throughout the book of Revelation, elevates Jesus to a place of authority that certainly didn't happen in the Old Testament and is a reminder to the church that we are the church of Jesus Christ. 
We aren't just the church of God. You know, when we refer to God, God is one of those things, if you tell somebody you believe in God, they form a picture in their mind, often of their God, and they think you believe in him or her. But when we say Jesus, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no doubt in that picture as to who we're following. It's not just a God, it's Jesus Christ. And most people have heard about him, and admittedly they think of him as the guy in the white robe with the staff and the beard. Um, and, well, that might be Moses, but... <laughs> he, might, he might have been clean-shaven, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, perhaps that's just how I see him. <laughs> how does he... No, let's not go there. Um, so it's not about us, but it's, uh, we do have a role to play. And so we, we need to work out what that role is. And if we, if, we look, if we look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, we come to that scripture we heard about where John says, I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. And I've left out the bit because he labels all the tribes and puts 12,000 of each. And if you do the math, it comes to 144,000. And it says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now here we've got it. This is one of those scenes where John's in heaven. So we know there's a lot of symbolism going on in here. And he is hearing with his ears an Old Testament confirmation of God's um, anointing of Israel's army. If you go back, and I think he says it's in the, uh, they said it was in the book of Numbers. I didn't go back and check that. Um, but the... the the Israelites drew together an army of 144,000 to protect them against their enemies. And they were anointed to fight. And so, but what he sees is this huge multitude of people. And because they're in heaven, we know that they're, they're actually Christians who have died for their faith. But it's interesting to see that they're from all nations, all languages, all tribes of the world. And they have stood by their faith and they have the ultimate reward in heaven. And so what we've got here is a scripture that's encouraging us to say it doesn't matter what the world says and it doesn't actually matter what the world does to you. There is a place for you in heaven. And the people in heaven are getting there and the thing that they are saying is, thank goodness, we were right. Salvation does come from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And so he, he's sending us a message back saying, see, this is what happens in heaven when you get there. Do not fall back on your faith. Do not compromise your faith. Stand firm because your reward in heaven is assured. Because I've been there and I've spoken to the people. And so from John's perspective, of course, because his perspective is a little different. When we see a multitude, how many people do you see? Million? Ten million? Because we got, we, uh, there is, what, seven plus billion people in the world. So a multitude for us can be pretty big. But John lived in a much smaller world. For him, a multitude might have only been a couple of thousand. And so he's actually talking to the first century churches. If I fall through, somebody rescue me. Um, and we, we, know, we actually know that. He's talking to the people who are going to be or are going through persecution right now and are going to be martyred. And we know that because I've read because I don't read Greek, so I had to read a book by somebody who did. Um, that John is here talking in the present tense. He's not talking about the future. He's not talking about a future tribulation. He's talking about the current one they're going through. 
And so he's talking about Christians who have been martyred while going through the persecution that he is currently prophesying about. It's not a future one, because as I said, he's doing it in the present tense. But that doesn't mean, of course, that, he, that what he's saying isn't relevant to future to present tribulations or, or persecutions that are going on, or to ones that may happen in the future. But if they do happen, here he's giving us a formula of what we can expect in heaven and what we're actually going to have to put up with on earth. But it's, a, it's a, an encouragement to say, stand by your faith. Do not lose faith. Because the, the reward for that is going to be absolutely incredible. And the reward, the reward for not holding to your faith is going to be equally as incredible in a very, very negative sense. So he's encouraging the church. If we go on and look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. This is a really weird one. He says, then I was giving a measuring stick. They hadn't invented uh, um, retractable tape measures then. And was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshippers, but do not measure the outer courtyard for it's been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And as, as mentioned earlier, this is most likely another reference to the church. The temple is the, the picture of God's church. And so here, we, here again, the, the, the whole idea of measuring, um, and I don't actually get this, but it's an Old Testament thing that basically measures the boundary, and if, if you're inside the measurements, you're protected by God. And so it's saying that our, we have a protection on God as we go out and share our faith. That God doesn't leave us, he doesn't, we're not out there on our own. As we preach to people, as we witness to people, as we stand on our faith, God is there to protect us. But it does point out that this doesn't actually stop us from undergoing persecution. And that that is going to happen. It gives the 42 months is another one of those numbers that uh, has symbolic meaning, which uh, we don't have time to go into right now. Uh, but it's not an actual time period. Um, now, if you want to argue with me about that after the service, uh, feel free as long as you've bought me a coffee. Um, so, the next few verses in chapter 11 actually talk about God's expectations of the church during these times. And this is this, this fun um, scripture about the, the witnesses. So, in verse 3, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses. Ever wondered why there were two? I'll explain in a moment. They will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during these. 1,260 days, another interesting number. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have the power to shut the sky so no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and the oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Who wants to be a prophet? <laughs> I mean, that sounds absolutely awesome if he was talking about two individual people. Now, some people believe he is. But I think with the symbology that we're seeing here, we can see that these, the lampstands and the olive trees in Zechariah refer to the church. And in fact, the two people it refers to in Zechariah are a priest and a king. And so this is a symbol of the two ways the church influences society. We minister to people inside the church, but we also have influence outside the walls of this church. We're called to be priests, but also kings. We're called to have influence outside the walls of our community as a church community. 
but also to minister people inside of that. So those, and if, if you're expecting that at some point two individuals are going to turn up and breathe fire, I'm not in that picture, I'm sorry. Uh, I think that's actually symbolism, a bit like the one of Jesus Christ riding a horse with a sword in his mouth. Um, I don't think he's actually going to do that. That's a symbol of the power of God's word. And I think here, what he, again, what John hears is an Old Testament description of the power of God given to Moses. Because who remembers? Moses did those things. He turned the rivers and oceans to blood and, and gave the Egyptians all the plague. And so, that, so what we're hearing is this is the power that we saw in the Old Testament. But we've actually got to turn that around and say, well, how is that going to appear in the New Testament? And we know that because we're here as the Lamb's Church, as Jesus' Church, the way we go to war is different from the way war was considered in the Old Testament. And so we have to look at, as a church, how do we fight? How do we... Because these things are powerful. I mean, it would be nice to be able to point at a bowl of water and say, turn to blood and sort of... It would be a great party trick, wouldn't it? Imagine going to a party and say, do you believe in God? No, I'll prove God exists. Turn to blood. But they'd say, oh, how'd you do that? Was that a magic? Did you get that off the internet? You've got to be careful how, how, we, how we try to show people that God is real and powerful. Party tricks won't do it. So the powerful thing about this picture of the church is that throughout the persecution, the power of Jesus thrown, shown through his church has an incredible influence on people to turn them to Jesus. And so reading on in verse 11, it says, After three and a half days, God breathed life into them because... Oh, the beast killed them. We got that thing about the beast crawled up. Lovely looking beast. Um, and killed them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. And a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. And at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God. And so this is... One of those things where the church is vindicated. The church can come with power and authority and change people's lives, but the world would always come against it. But God will always vindicate his church, no matter what they've gone through, whether they've been killed, sort of left dead in the streets or whatever, God will always come back. And it says that the witness of the church caused people to give glory to God. Now, I don't know what you're thinking. You're thinking at the end there, it says there was, a, there was an earthquake and everyone was terrified and gave glory to God. But the earthquake is only a minor. If we go back to chapter 9 of Revelation, and the, the, uh, the animation talked about this, how the wrath of God didn't cause people to repent, but the mercy of the church did. So if we go back to Revelation 9.18, we see the wrath of God here where it says, A third of all the people on earth were killed by three plagues, the fire, the smoke, and the burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. Interesting horse. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And so we see a picture here of a third of the world's population perishing. And they know that it's God. But they refuse to repent. And here we have two prophets representing the church who stand on their faith, even to the point of being killed. 
And even though there's a, there's a minor earthquake, which actually mirrors the earthquake uh, on Jesus' death on Calvary, because the, the idea that it killed a tenth, and we've got to remember these numbers aren't exact numbers. It's not like, you know, let's count all the people there and kill a tenth of them. It's, it, it's actually to indicate that it's not a terribly bad event in relative terms. Um, but the actual thing that causes people to repent is the, fact, is the witness and the testimony of the two prophets, the priests and the kings of the church. Who's that? That... Sure about that? It's you guys. I mean, this stuff sounds a bit frightening. We've got to go out there and do some stuff. Are you excited about it? I mean, the rewards are great, but the job conditions don't look terribly exciting, do they? <laughs> yeah, none of this. You know, I demand an hour's lunch break, and uh, it's, it looks as though it could be um, pretty, pretty devastating out there. And, and I think to a Christian of John's time, these, this imagery is, is really, really powerful. Um, I don't think the, the gravity of the situation sinks in too, too well with us. I mean, don't forget that John himself hadn't ever seen Star Wars or, or Avatar in 3D. Uh, and so they weren't... I mean, we're bombarded with images daily of, of things that are so incredible, and yet we, 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 we believe them. I mean, we have movies that can make images jump out of the screen at us, and we just sit there and laugh, say, ooh, isn't that great technology? I mean, if you showed that in the first century church, you'd have half the people carted out with heart attacks. But we're so inured to this, this, this visual imagery that we see that often when we read this sort of thing, it loses its power. Um, but in the first century, that, that these would have been very powerful uh, images they, they, they would have encouraged and excited the people of the church because they could see the hope that they were living for. They could see the purpose in their witnessing. They could see the the results of their actions before their very eyes, and they had an encouragement about what heaven thought about what they were doing. And so it was it was actually quite an encouragement. I mean, it's not quite the, the devastation, and we'll talk about that a bit later about this whole idea that, that, that the book of Revelation is leading us to a bloody battle at the end of the world is, again, something which is possibly not exegetically correct. So what we've actually got to take home from this this morning is that this, all this imagery depicting the judgment of God and the persecution from the world shows us that the church is still God's plan A for saving planet Earth. And I'll let you into a secret. There is no plan B. And so the book of Revelation is actually starting to guide us into a place which tells us that we are to continue what we have been doing, hopefully, as a church already. We are to continue to love our enemies. There were no excited amens about that one. We are to heal the sick and to perform miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it talks here about the Old Testament power. We can translate that to uh, the New Testament, to what Cody was talking about. When the Holy Spirit came, he came in power to empower the saints, the church, us as people. So uh, Revelation talks about that. The, the two prophets, the church rises up and we have to rise up and manifest the power of the Holy Spirit for people to take notice. 
So we're, we're to continue to bear witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we are to be kings and priests to the world. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And what that's saying is it doesn't matter what you do on this earth. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to serve in church. If you work in a hairdressing salon, you are a priest in that hairdressing salon. If you go to university, you are a king and a priest in that university. Whatever you do after you meet Jesus is spiritual. Some of us think that once we leave here, we can be secular again. You know, Monday is secular day. I can cast off those clothes of going to church. I can go to work and swear like a trooper. Um, uh, and I can forget about those things until next Sunday when I have to put my church clothes on and be spiritual again. There's no such thing as secular when you receive Jesus. You're in the royal priesthood whether you like it or not. And that is our, our role. We are in those end times. There is no doubt about the fact that what John is describing as happening to the churches in the first century is happening to the churches today. And is likely to happen in similar ways to the churches in the future. But the great message is that Jesus is relying on us to actually bring the world to salvation by what he's done on the cross, by the fact that he is the slain lamb replacing the line of Judah and that we're to continue to do what Christ has called us to do. Can I ask you to stand? I really like it when I get a response from the congregation. Uh, we can all learn something, I think, from the younger people in our, in our congregation. That's great to get a response from that. Um, I mentioned that when we accept Jesus, it's, it's more than just accepting Jesus into our hearts. We, we actually accept a role as a priest. And we, we've, I've, I grew up in the, in the Catholic Church and, and my idea of a priest was the, the guy in the purple robes who stood up the front. And he was in charge and the rest of us were actually not very involved. And so I, I grew up with this, this whole idea that to, to be a priest, uh, you needed to train hard and, and uh, learn a lot of scriptures and things and a lot of fancy words. I, still, I used to get caught up on Nebuchadnezzar. That's one I could never pronounce. Um, but Jesus tells us that when we accept him, he accepts us as priests and kings in his kingdom. We actually have not just a role to play, but an important role to play. But that role doesn't happen until we accept Jesus as our Lord, as our King, as our priest into our lives. And so I want to offer an opportunity this morning. If you've never done that, if you've never said, I need the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. I want to be a Christ follower. I want to be a king and a priest in the kingdom of God. To learn what Jesus is all about. To let him speak into my life. Then it's an easy thing to do. We just have to open our hearts, confess with our mouth that he is our Lord and Saviour. And in this church we do that by praying a short prayer to actually ask Jesus into our life. And so if you haven't done that this morning, I'm going to 
in a moment just offer you an opportunity to pray with me that prayer to accept Jesus into your life. Or if you've done it before, but you know that you really need to do it again. You're not walking with Jesus. You're not a king or a priest in his kingdom. But you know that Jesus will always accept people back if they're prepared to humble themselves and ask. So if that's you, I invite you to do the same. And so I'm going to ask everybody just to close their eyes. And if you fit into any of those two categories, if you can just raise your hand high so I can see it, give us a wave and we'll pray that prayer to invite Jesus into your life. Awesome. If you can open your eyes, let's all lift our hands to heaven right now. Mighty God, I thank you that you have appointed and anointed every single one of us here as a priest and a ruler in your kingdom. We thank you that that responsibility that you've placed on us gives us the power to actually speak into the lives of people who don't know you, to bring healing, to bring encouragement, to bring love, to bring compassion, and to bring the power of Jesus Christ into a hurting world. And so, Lord, we accept that anointing right now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let this week be a week of change. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much, Pastor Chris. Let's give him a hand and show our appreciation.